Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. In order to become a great runner, you actually have to run. Did you know that? Very surprising, I know. Uh, Well, I want to be a great runner, so I run. You know that. But not just run. I also work hard on my running by learning more about running. Uh, I learned about good running from other good runners. From good runners, I've learned how to build my aerobic base, um, how to run injury-free, mostly, how to learn a more efficient running cadence and uh, build in proper strength training and technical trail running and proper hydration. I've learned how or when I'm supposed to run hard, which is a lot less than you'd think, and when I'm supposed to run slow, which is a lot more than you'd think, as well as when to kind of lean in, when to back off, how to, you know, periodize your training, all that kind of stuff. And even during these weeks where I've been on surgery recovery, or I can't run, I've been continuing to work on my running by learning about running. It keeps me focused. What I've discovered is this. Even though there is a ton of data and information on running out there, elite runners and good coaches will always circle back to the same few fundamentals over and over again. They do it every time. And it's these basics that form the essential core of any good running program. And so for me, knowing and then applying these key principles helps me flourish as a runner as long as I remember them and do them. Well, when it comes to our spiritual flourishing, there are times when we can wonder, what does it take? What are the the few fundamentals that we need to keep coming back to that you could say form the core of our formation training. Perhaps you could put it like this. When you pare down everything to the basics, when you wade through everything you hear, what do you really need to know? What do you really need to do so that we grow up in Christ, so that we become more mature, so that we experience more of God's grace in our lives, so that we look more like Jesus, so that we deal with the stuff that keeps dragging us down again and again so that we can help the ones that we love and make a difference in the world and have more peace and joy in our lives and bring glory to the Father. In short, what do we need to know and do so that we can flourish? Well, through May and June, we're exploring this beautiful little gem, the letter to the Colossians, written to this little church community in what is now modern-day Turkey. And it turns out they were wrestling with the same kind of questions that you and I wrestle with. What do we need to know to live these lives worthy of the Lord and pleasing him in every way? This God who rescued us, who loved us. What does God want us to do as his saints, his holy people, which we're called in this letter? Because if we could just nail down a few of these basics and then apply them regularly to our lives, then we'd be able to move ahead, wouldn't we? Or dare I say, we might even run. No? Just walk? Okay. 
Well, some of you might run. Well, today we're going to get, I think, the very best guidance from one of God's most gifted coaches from one of the most glorious passages in the whole of Scripture. And I'm not exaggerating. If you're ready for it, we're in Colossians chapter 1. Now, last week, the Apostle Paul started his letter with prayer, a big section on prayer, and it was super encouraging. Paul had actually never met these folks in Colossae, but he tells them about all the wonderful reports he's been hearing about them. Reports of how they've come to trust their lives to Jesus, their Messiah, their Lord, and how their faith and trust in Jesus was actually being expressed in their love for other people, particularly other followers of Jesus, and how that's all connected to this resurrection hope they've received. And then Paul prays for them a most powerful prayer, asking God to help these saints flourish. And this prayer is an absolute masterpiece of intercession. It gives us a model that we can use to pray for each other, to pray for our kids, to pray for a spouse, to pray for someone who you've lost contact with and you're wondering how they're doing, to to pray for a neighbor or a friend, or even someone with whom you have a slightly antagonistic relationship, dare I say even an enemy, you can use this prayer for them. It's powerful. I strongly encourage you to do that, to memorize it, to let this prayer in Colossians 1, 9 through 12 shape and reshape your words about others to God. Well, from that prayer of flourishing, Paul now moves to the one who is the source of all flourishing, Jesus, the Son of God. And that's where he wants us to soak today. This is what he wants us to pick up and learn about the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus, who is over all and through whom all creation, all people, all things will find their truest home and their ultimate meaning. And when it comes to the subject of Jesus, Paul has a lot to say. So let's dive in. What do we need to know in order to flourish as God's saints? Say it together. Jesus. No, no, really. Say it together. Jesus. And some of us could think, well, yeah, oh, great. I came to church this morning and I was told I've got to know Jesus. (laughs) But there's more, folks. What Paul now does is so deep It's so amazing. I'm daunted to take us into it. But there's only one way through. Let's go. We need to know Jesus. Verse 13. Backing up a little bit. For he, the Father, he's talking about the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, this Son. And now what Paul does is he begins to explore who the Son is. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is for all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's pause there. In order for us to flourish as God's saints, we've got to know who Jesus is. And he's a deep subject. Look at what Paul has already given us here. Who is Jesus? First, 
He's the perfect portrait of God. This is what we're told right off the bat. God is invisible, and yet Jesus makes him visible. Jesus is the icon of God. That's the, that's the Greek used here, and we can hear it in English, right? He's the icon of the Father. He's the perfect image of God. That through his life, through his teaching, through the way he interacted with people, the things he cared about, the things he didn't care about, through his friendships, through his death and his resurrection, through his ascension and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit, through his ongoing intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, through all these things, Jesus, the Son of God, makes God seeable. And in fact, the only way that we can ever know the true God is through his true image, through his true icon, Jesus Christ. He's the perfect image. We look to Jesus to know God. But don't miss this. By calling him the perfect image of God, he's also telling us something significant about Jesus' humanity. Not only is it through Jesus that we see who God truly is, we also see who we truly are. Because in the scripture, the images of God are who? Human beings are created in the image of God. Jesus is the perfect image of God, which means he perfectly reflects and reveals who God is, but he also perfectly reflects and reveals who we are, who humans are, who we were meant to be in relationship with God. So we look at Jesus, the perfect image. We see God and we see ourselves. Second, Jesus has primacy over all creation. That little tag, firstborn. Y'all heard it? Firstborn speaks of Jesus' authority over all creation. In ancient cultures, the rights and privileges of the firstborn are well-known and undisputed. And this designation here signals for us that Jesus is the rightful firstborn, the one who is supreme over all creation. He's the rightful heir. He's the rightful Lord. He is the one who is over all. And it signals for us the one to whom we look as the final and total authority, as well as the one we worship, Jesus, who is over all. Third, do some of you want to be taking notes on this? You're catching all this, aren't you? You mind traps have got this. There's 10 things this morning, just, just as an alert. Third, Jesus is the source of all creation's life and purpose. Those at home have an advantage, right? They, just, they can walk around the kitchen and pick, pick out notes and shout at the camera. You could too, actually. Jesus is the source of all creation's life and purpose. Creation was literally made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, which means that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing the one in whom all of this world, including its peoples, its animals, its mountains, oceans, soils, plants, air, expanding it out to distant stars and galaxies, back down to human cultures and the things we've developed like music, art, science, industry. All of these things are sourced by the Son, sourced by Jesus, and they find their ultimate purpose and goal in Jesus too. Oof, there's a lot there, but let's keep going. Four, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That is, we hear, he is before all things. Jesus isn't created. He's the creator. He's eternal. In the early centuries, Christians wrestled out what this meant 
particularly when they were coming against ideas that wanted to diminish Jesus' status as the divine, eternal son of God. Arius, most famously, argued that Jesus was actually created by God, and then through Jesus, God created everything else. Modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, that's where they align. They align with that ancient heresy called Arianism. Arian heresy. Well, to combat this, Athanasius argued from scriptures like these and others that Jesus is not not created, but in fact the eternal Son of God. And he would said the famous line, there never was a time when he was not. There never was a time when he was not. There were never, never a time, no moment in history, when the Son, history or prehistory, whatever, there was never a moment where the Son did not exist in a perfect, dynamic, loving relationship with his Father by the Spirit. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are eternal. And the Son is one with the Father and the Spirit. Now, from these very important theological battles, we were gifted clarity around who Jesus is. And some of that clarity was distilled in uh, one of the creeds that we quote uh, here and there called the Nicene Creed. If you look at some of the early creeds, you can see where the battle lines are being drawn because you'll have a little bit on the Father and frankly, a little bit on the Spirit and then you'll have a huge section on Jesus. Why? Because everyone's fighting over Jesus, particularly fighting to diminish his status. And so it's no surprise when you see how these creeds are formed Well, in the Nicene Creed, we declare that, I quote, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. And they were hammering every line of that out to try to combat the idea that Jesus was just another created being. No, he's the eternal Son of God. Fifth, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. I love that line, that in him all things hold together. Don't you? And it's just brilliant. Not only is he a creator of all, but he's the sustainer of all too. The sun rises and sets and quarks quiver and ducks dive and tectonic plates shift and Jesus is holding it all. Whether you're looking at the laws of gravity or thinking about the theory of special relativity, Jesus is the one. Those things are the expression of his lordship and of his care. And the implications of this truth, that in him all things hold together, quite literally know no bounds. To think and live and act that out, it quite literally changes everything. Now, these are just five of the truths that Paul has given us this morning. But I want us to pause there because I want us to tease out some of the implications of this. I think it's important. One of the ways that we engage Scripture and we grow in our understanding is as we engage the truth of Scripture, we begin to think, well, what does that mean? How does that impact us? How does that change the way we live or think, right? Let me tease out a few implications that came to me. But I imagine that you have some implications that would come to you as well. First implication that came to me was the significance of science. Jesus forms the center and sustains all of creation. And knowing this gives a special kind of motivation, drive, even wisdom and understanding for Jesus' followers who are involved in scientific work. Because they know to study God's creation is to come to know the mind of Christ at a more deep level. They know this. 
This has been seen down through the years. It's motivated many scientists through the centuries and still motivates many, many today. As they realize that their field work and their lab work and their research leads them inexorably to worship the Lord. And we need this. We need scientists who are engaging these multifaceted questions and areas of research from this core understanding that all of creation is by him, through him, and for him. Don't we? I'm reading right now the work of a physicist called Max Tegmark. It's above my pay grade, but I have a younger person in my house, and I talk to him, and he explains things to me. Okay, so I'm reading (coughs) this, and Max Tegmark believes that the most important conversation going on in the world today, does anybody have a guess? Most important conversation going on in the world today, he says, is the relationship of our future human life with artificial intelligence. And he argues persuasively for how significant and important and we cannot neglect and we've got to take care of this conversation. We've got to be involved. It's a mind-blowing book. And let me tell you, I'm not done yet, but I want to assure you, I hope that we have followers of Jesus with a firm conviction that all of creation is sourced by Jesus, created by him and through him and for him, who are involved deeply in the conversation of how we engage and create and protect and use artificial intelligence. Very, very significant. And there could be some here watching online, or maybe you've got a grandkid or a friend or a nephew or a niece who's involved in the STEM, in science, technology, engineering, maths, and you need to encourage them to dive deep as a follower of Jesus because we need people involved in science. Connected to that would be another implication, would be the importance of conservation science or earth care. I mean, knowing who all of this was created for will inform the way we treat what he's created, right? It's a no-brainer. We all know that. Yes, of course. And yet, how we do that, when we do that, what kind of policies need to be in place or don't need to be in place, well, that is what we wrestle with and we struggle with. But let it be said clearly that as people who are committed to this Jesus, in whom and through whom and by whom and for whom all creation was made, We need to engage and live into this. We need to faithfully conserve and care for God's creation from this understanding that Jesus made it all for himself. That's what led the farmer and writer Wendell Berry to say that our destruction of nature, I'm quoting him, is not just bad stewardship or stupid economics or betrayal of family responsibility. Wendell Berry said, it is the most horrid blasphemy. It's flinging God's gifts in his face as, as of no worth beyond that assigned to them by our destruction of them. Ooh, okay. Another implication is the way we witness to love as the core of the universe. Whether this is in high-level philosophical conversations or at the coffee shop, which are also high-level philosophical conversations, knowing that Jesus the one who became one of us to rescue us from sin, the one who hung on the cross is at the same time the very person who created and sustains, the very person in whom the purpose of all things is met, 
means that love sits at the very core of our universe. Not only through the actions of Jesus, but when we consider that the eternal triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this eternal relationship of love also sit at the very core of everything, we know that everything finds its center in love. Some of you who know me closely know that I do not like when people talk about the universe being loving and caring. I think, no, the universe is not loving and caring. The universe will kill you in a moment, given a chance. So maybe this is making me slightly repent of that. What I realize when people talk about the universe caring for them is what they're pointing at is a subtle truth that they may be missing, and that is this. At the very core of the universe is a God who loves them. Perhaps they're reaching for it when they say that. William Barclay said this connection of Jesus Christ with creation is not simply cosmological drama, dogma, or speculation. It is an affirmation of faith that the love which is operative in redemption, when we look at the cross, is the same love which is operative in creation, and that therefore the principle of the universe is love. There's lots of implications there. Let me make one more, and that is this. Our everyday worries the things that we're carrying. I know in conversations with you, but just looking around, there's a crippling amount of anxiety around that we're carrying for a lot of reasons. But there is such a powerful truth here to know that in him all things hold together. I mean, that old song, right? He's got the whole world in his hands. This is it. And to somehow in the midst of our anxiety, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of depression, in the midst of, 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 of looking at fractured relationships, to somehow be able to say and declare, Jesus, it is in you that all things hold together. To declare that, to live from that, to wake up in the morning and believe that and say that, even in the face of what looks like the opposite. It's life-changing. Well, let's keep going. We have five more, don't we? We got time. So, Paul wants us to know Jesus, the perfect image of God over all creation, but he wants us to know more. It's like he moves now from Jesus in the life of his creation, but now he narrows it to Jesus in the life of his church, in his church. So, picking up again, verse 18. And he, remember what he's just coming out of, he who is the one who is before all things and holds all things together, he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Paul is really piling it on now, isn't he? He's really piling it on. He's already given us five mind-blowing truths, but he wants to give us five more. So here we go. Number six, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. That is, he's the leader. He's the top. He's the source. He's the one who directs us. He's the mind. We are, by extension, part of him. We follow his leadership. We go where he goes. We say what he says. We 
the saints, the holy people of God, who've been rescued, redeemed, filled by the Holy Spirit, we look to Jesus, who is our head. We're connected to him. This is so significant. This means that we look at the body of Christ. We look at his church differently, which sometimes is hard, right? I think. But we remember when we look at the church, when we look at brothers and sisters assembled, scattered, different groups, different places around the world, we are looking at the body of Jesus Christ and take into consideration everything we've just learned about Jesus and hold it there. His body. Which means that we need to seek this body's flourishing and goodness and support and growth and maturity. Now, it does mean that there's times when we need to call some stuff out and challenge it, right? Speak the truth in love. Offer corrective. Prophetically challenge something. That happens. But at no point in the Scripture, and, and as a member of this body, should we ever fall guilty of trying to tear down the church or denigrate the church or, or scoff it off or mistreat or diminish it? It's the body of Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the creator, but he's also the crucified Lord, which I think indicates something to us very significant. This one who is our head is not like another tyrannical emperor. This is a shepherd king who sacrificed himself for us, who leads us out of that kind of life. Head of the body, the church. Number seven. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. This is, this is powerful. Be, you know, think of what Paul's doing here. Not only has he placed Jesus as, of course, at the start of creation, creating all things and head over all of creation, but now through his resurrection, and by repeating the word firstborn, he's really helping us here. He, he says, look, not only is he over all of creation, he's over the new creation order as well. Through his resurrection, a whole new way of being has begun. And he's going to bring all of old creation with him. He's going to restore and redeem and resurrect. But he's the head of all, new and old. New creation has begun in him and by him and for him and for us. And so our resurrection hope isn't just wishful thinking, but it's rooted in concrete fact. This happened for Jesus, and because it happened for him, it's going to happen for me. It's going to happen for us. It's going to happen for his world. Recreation, resurrection. And then Paul makes the link, which kind of shows, he says, in order that he can have supremacy in everything. Jesus is supreme over everything. That's number eight. This is what the resurrection reveals. I mean, he's the guy that turned back death. He's the guy that said, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. And when I rise, it'll be a signal that a whole new world has begun. And he's supreme over it all. He's the king. Every time I, I, I see this, hear this, I cannot help but remember the words of the Dutch uh, politician. In fact, I think he was a prime minister of the Netherlands, um, but also theologian back in like you know, 130 years ago. He, he said this, though. These words, powerful. He said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, Mine! <laughs> Did you catch that? There is not. A square inch in the whole dominion, domain, sorry, of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, 
mine. This is his. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he has supremacy. Number nine, Jesus is the living temple of the triune God. God's, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. And understanding this, he's going to say something similar a little later in Colossians 2. Understanding and responding and worshiping and meditating and praying to and just soaking in the truth of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, means that we will always find the fullness of God when we come to Jesus, that we look to Jesus and we get the Father and the Spirit always. When we worship Jesus, we worship the Father and we worship by the Spirit. When we commune with Jesus, we are in communication at the very same time with the Father and the Spirit. Soaking in this truth is so life-changing. But it doesn't just stop there. I mean, just considering who Jesus is and holding that in your heart and mind, that is breathtaking. But don't miss this. This isn't just about Jesus. It's about us too. We've just been told that Jesus is the head of what? The body, his church. And so what we're realizing all of a sudden is, wait a minute, what's true of the head, what's true of Jesus is going to also be true in this sense of us so that we can understand that God who is pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus means that by his spirit, he's pleased to have his fullness dwell in us. That's why Jesus is both the temple and we are too. And the scripture speaks of that. Number 10, Jesus is the one through whom all things are reconciled back to God, including us. Not only is Jesus the purpose of creation, but he's its salvation, its restoration, reconciliation, the making of all things new and right. This is accomplished through this Jesus' peacemaking death on a Roman cross. And it applies to all of history. It applies to all the cosmos. It applies to the wars and the mess and the sin and the hurt and the brokenness. Whether that is on a global scale, whether that is down through history, whether that is in our own lives, this applies to us that the one who reconciled us is reconciling all. He's committed to his project of new creation. What do we need to know in order to flourish? Jesus in all of his multi-dimensional glory. And if your head's spinning, good. Because our head should be spinning right now. There should be so much packed in there right now. We're like, oh my, Jesus, you're amazing. How am I ever going to learn this stuff? When we said Jesus at the start, did you think it would be so expansive and dazzling? I didn't. We need to know Jesus in order to flourish. Well, Okay, that's who we need to know, and we've got our like, life project now for us. What do we need to do specifically? Well, Paul clinches this in his finish in today's passage with a powerful challenge. I stopped our reading just short, so I'll just back up slightly and then finish today's passage. See if you catch it. Jesus is the one we need to know. What do we need to do? Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if, if, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. 
see what Paul has done here. Jesus. And we've got to hold all, try to just, just with our arms big, kind of hold all the truth in our minds. This Jesus who's made us right with God through his crucified body for the purpose of presenting us holy, you know, so the, the Holy One making us holy. Paul now says, that's all true if we continue in it. If we continue in our trust of him. If we continue in the faith which isn't just a set of beliefs. It's a, it's a living relationship of trust with this person, Jesus Christ, who makes the invisible God visible, who's overall and resurrected and all the things we've talked about. This Jesus, that we place our living trust in him and we continue to nurture that trust, established and firm, not being moved from the hope that we've already discovered and heard in the gospel. That is the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done. We've got to hold on. We've got to continue. What do we need to know in order to flourish? Jesus. What do we need to do in order to flourish? Keep trusting Jesus. Hold on. Stand firm. You kind of hear echoes of Paul's earlier prayer here, though, don't you? Because earlier, he was praying. He tells them, this is what I'm constantly praying for you guys. I'm constantly, every, every day, this is what I'm praying. That you'll live lives worthy, pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, which he just helped us do like hugely, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. So this holding in there, continuing, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. It's all there. Paul's praying it and then he starts to deliver on it. He's praying they'll stand firm and keep holding on. They'll keep bearing fruit. They'll keep growing in the knowledge of Jesus. And he turns and starts to help them do just that so that they will hold on to Jesus, keep trusting in him. Well, how do we do that as we close today? I know there's a lot of ways we can do this, a lot of ways we can practice this, a lot of helpful ways that our brothers and sisters down through history and today can teach us about ways that we can pray, ways that we can read, ways that we can study, ways that we can serve, things that we can practice in our lives that help us hold on. But today, I want to offer you one simple practice that's all about holding on to Jesus with your mind. Okay? So I want you to think about one of these 10 truths that we've explored today that Paul has, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has made known to us. Take, take one of these truths right now in your mind. So you pick it in your mind. It could be that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. It could be Jesus is the eternal son of God. It could be what? Firstborn from the dead. You pick it. Does everyone have that? Everyone has a truth in their mind that they're going to choose. And then what I'm going to ask you to do, and then we'll do it, I'm going to ask you simply, just we're just going to quiet ourselves for a moment. And then, in our, just in our minds, we're going to repeat that truth to ourselves. We're going to say, Jesus, you are the eternal Son of God. Jesus, you are the one in whom all things are held together. Whatever it is, you're going to repeat that. And then we're simply going to hold that truth in our minds for 30 seconds. Do nothing else but think about that truth, which might be more challenging for some of us than, than, uh, than we think. That's what we're going to try, okay? So here it is. Uh, I, I, I have a timer. <clears throat> You know, try this out here. 
And uh, so you pick out the one truth that you have, the one truth that you've chosen. You have it in your mind? Everyone? For 30 seconds, I want you to just close your eyes. Actually, close your eyes now. Quiet yourself for a moment. And then when I say go, for 30 seconds, I want you to think only about that truth. Ready? Go ahead. For 30 seconds. Okay, that was 30 seconds. How was that for you? Those of you who are online, say it in the chat. How was that for you? 30 seconds. Go ahead, give me some feedback. What was it like for you to do that? Okay, first of all, was it hard? Was it easy? Medium hard? Medium easy? Any of you uh, get distracted? Were you able to sustain that thought for thir- a 30 full seconds? Who was able to sustain it for 30 seconds? Come on, be honest. We'll all look at you and clap. Okay. Brilliant. How many of you found, there's no shame in this, how many of you found that there was something that broke your concentration somewhere in the middle there and you had to come back to it? Anyone? Yeah. Well, that was me. Um, you know, I'm the guy supposed to be doing this thing. I got I, I distracted. Won't tell you why, but I did. 30 seconds. This is actually a powerful practice. Now, that was just 30 seconds. But I first learned about this practice from a man named uh, Frank Labauch. I don't know how to say his last name. In the 1920s, 1930s, Frank attempted what he called an experiment to cultivate an active moment-by-moment awareness of Christ's presence all the while working a very intense job. He wasn't a monk, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, They have jobs too, but nevertheless. He was working a regular job. He had a lot of roadblocks. He expressed a lot of frustrations. Um, But on January 3rd, 1930, Frank wrote this in his journal, New Year's journal. He said, as for me, I resolved that I would succeed better this year with my experiment of filling every minute full of the thought of God than I had succeeded last year, he said. He would try throughout his days while he was working. Every moment he could possibly do it, he would hold in his mind the thought of God, an awareness of Jesus, a truth about Jesus, about God, Scripture. He would hold that as often as he could and for as long as he could in his conscious mind. And then, like everybody, right, he'd realize 45 minutes later, oh, yeah, it's gone, right? And he'd bring himself back to it. And he would try over and over again. But here on January 3rd, he added something else. This wasn't just about having your head in the sky and walking around and slightly dazed, as you could maybe think that that's what it means. He also said, I also added another resolve, to be as wide open to people and their need, as I am toward God. Windows open outward as well as upward. 
windows especially open downward where people need it most. I was very challenged by Frank's uh, chronicles, how he walked around intentionally trying to hold in his mind the awareness of God. There are other practices like this, but it's a profound thing for us to cultivate. And what I want to encourage you to do is to take this practice with you, to take one of these truths that we heard today from Colossians 1 and try to cultivate a sustained attention to it. Now, you may want to try to carry it throughout the day, but I actually challenge you to just try doing it for 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Pause after you're done eating breakfast. Take a moment as you get into your car before you leave and just simply sit there for one solid minute and think this truth or a truth or just simply hold in your mind an attentiveness of God's presence. I'm convinced that that is one of the ways, one of the many, but one key way that we can continue holding on to Jesus, holding on to who he is, holding on to the truth of who he is and how that then impacts and works out in our lives. In order to flourish as modern saints, we need to know Jesus and soak in who he is, and we need to hold on to him by keeping our trust in him. Like running, I think it's very easy to be overwhelmed by many things that we hear. You may have even experienced a little overwhelm this morning. But I hope you hear this ringing through loud and clear. When it comes right down to it, we've got to know Jesus, and we've got to hold on to him. Because that's what Jesus, our creator and our sustainer and our savior and our Lord, that's what he reconciled and redeemed us for. He's holding on to us. And he's calling us to hold on to him so that we can truly flourish as his saints. Let me pray for you. And then uh, my team's going to come. We're going to lead a final song of response today. Lord Jesus, I do pray that we would nurture in our minds and hearts the truth of who you are. We have so much to learn about you, so much to learn in our minds, so much to learn in our lives, to recognize who you are. And though there are many distractions, things that seek to threaten our focus or pull us off from center, to distract us from you, and holding on to you, we know that you are strong, that you are mighty, that you are holding all of us together, that you are our head. And we just ask that by your Spirit, you would nurture your life in us as a community, in us individually. We do want you to be our center. We want the truth of who you are to be established and strong in us. Like our brothers and sisters in Colossae, we recognize that there can be things that are, that, are, that are threatening or distracting us. We ask that you would hold us, be our center. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. 
For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.